Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tuesday Night Church Through the Bible Study at Calvary Monterey. And today we're in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. And I'm going to call this particular chapter or study, uh, When People of God Live by the Power of God. When the people of God live by the power of God. I'll talk about that in a moment, but here on the table with me, instead of a mug today, I've got my trusty orange Nalgene bottle. Why orange, you ask? Well, I just find that I lose this one so much less often than all the previous Nalgene bottles that I have, I've had. And it just gives me the good vibes with my Lake Tahoe sticker on there just all year long. I think about Tahoe. It's important to stay hydrated. I recommend it highly. All right, let's get into Genesis chapter 21 together. Like I said, when the people of God live by the power of God is to me a major emphasis or theme of this particular chapter. And you'll see what I mean in just the first couple of verses. Let's start out in verse one and two. It says, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now at this point, the reader might be fascinated by the brevity of this particular account. I mean, think of it all the way back in Genesis chapter 11, at the conclusion of the table of the nations, Abraham's family was mentioned, his father, some other brothers and relatives, and his wife, Sarai, who was barren, was mentioned for the first time in Genesis chapter 11. In chapter 12, God then promised to this man, Abram, uh, 25 years before this episode, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that God would make him into a great nation. And for that, of course, Abram had to have offspring. He had to have children. He needed to have at least a son. And through the course of the last 10 chapters in the book of Genesis, we have followed out the question of when will that son be born? Uh, there have been moments where their faith has lapsed and they've tried in the power of their own might and flesh to get the job done. Uh, going into Hagar, having Ishmael as a child. Uh, there have been moments where Abraham's faith has faltered, where he hasn't trusted God when he went down to Egypt or when he went to Abimelech in the land of the Philistines. Uh, there were moments where God reconfirmed his promise to Abraham, even visiting him in the three men meeting in the tent in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, there were moments where they laughed at God's promise. Abraham laughing in chapter 17 and Sarah laughing in chapter 18. And then there was the moment that God announced this time next year, Sarah will bear a child. There is so much buildup is what I'm trying to say. There is so much human activity, so much doubt intermixed with belief, intermixed with failure and flesh. But through it all, the promise of God remains. And now at the conclusion, you get these two short verses. The Lord visits. The Lord did what he said in verse one. He did what he promised in verse one, and he did what he had spoken in verse two. In other words, as you look at this, what you're observing 
is the power and the ability of God himself. It takes so many chapters to describe the journey of Abraham and Sarah, but here in just a couple of breaths, it's declared that God does the impossible. Uh, the, the, the author, Moses, he doesn't write down this story like, can you believe that it actually occurred? It's just, this is who God is. Uh, the God who spoke creation into existence, the God who said, light be and light was, that God said that they would have a child and now he has fulfilled his promise in their lives. And this is one of the first or, or the, really the reason why I think this whole chapter can point us to the people of God living in and by the power of God. And this is the power of God right here. This is God who produced a child for Abraham and Sarah. This is God who is flexing his power and his might. He is doing the work. And the rest of the chapter really is a response to the work that God has done. Now, of course, this would be greatly informative for the people of Israel. There they are receiving the law from Moses uh, and going into the promised land. And as they go in to the promised land, they need to know that they are going to go in by God's power, by God's might. He had made them a promise just as he had made a promise to Abraham and Sarah. And of course, the Lord has given promises to his people today as well. We have the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he came once fulfilling those portions of his promise. And we have the promise that he will come again. Uh, we have the promise of his Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts and lives by faith. And as we believe and trust in him, he fulfills that promise. We have the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We have the promise that he will never leave us and forsake us as we engage in the mission of making disciples of all nations. So we have so many beautiful promises throughout scripture. And here we see Abraham and Sarah living or experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise. This is his power. This is the ability, the strength the majesty of God. So this is the first thing I want you to see, God's power and God's ability. It's more powerful than us, more powerful than Abraham and Sarah and what they could produce and all their human energy, and more powerful than we could ever know. God just breathes it, he wills it, he desires it, and Abraham and Sarah miraculously have a child. Now, of course, you and I know uh, in reading Genesis 21, that this is not the first time that there will be a miraculous baby in scripture. There will be many in the Old Testament. Uh, there will be a, a few in the New Testament. And of course, the major miraculous child who would come would be Jesus. Uh, the miraculous birth that he would experience uh, because of the virginity of his mother, Mary. And so in a sense, this miraculous birth, as all of them in scripture, point to points to the birth eventually of Jesus Christ. Okay, but let's go on now. We've seen the power of God. This is God's ability, God's strength. But let's see what happens next. It says in verse three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, all of these things that Abraham does in response to the birth of Isaac or God fulfilling his promise, all of these things that he does, they are actually acts of obedience. God had already told him uh, to, to do these things. First of all, it says that he named his son Isaac. You might remember in chapter 17, God, after Abraham laughed, uh, told Abraham and Sarah that they would name their son Isaac uh, because the name Isaac means laughter. And so he 
obeys God and he names his son laughter. And the second thing that he does is when Isaac is eight days old, he circumcises Isaac, which is also uh, obedience to God. Because also in Genesis chapter 17, God gave to Abraham and to his male descendants after him the covenant right of circumcision, an outward sign of what was supposed to be happening inwardly in the lives of Abraham and his descendants, that they were to live a clean life, a sexually holy life, to be different from the people around them. And so Abraham is obeying God by doing uh, these two things. And that's why it says there in verse eight that he did these things as God had commanded him. And listen, if you want to be a person who lives continually in the sphere of the power of God, the, the, the blessing of God, to use a word that is sometimes nebulous in our modern vernacular, then you must be a person who responds in obedience to the Lord. That's what Abraham was doing. You know, God had done the hard thing. So often people think of their obedience to the Lord as the major thing, the difficult thing, the major sacrifice. But God was the one who did the very difficult thing, the impossible thing. But Abraham was merely responding to what God had done for him. And Israel, of course, needed to know this as they read the book of Genesis, because how would their lives go? Well, they were going to go into the promised land and they'd have to go into the promised land by their own power. In fact, there's that infamous episode in the book of Joshua when the people of God, after their first miraculous victory inside the promised land over the city of Jericho, they spied out the second target, a city called Ai, which was much smaller and had uh, less defenses and military might than the city of Jericho. And so they assumed that they would have victory. There was a little bit of pride or arrogance. They didn't think that they needed to lean upon the Lord. Unfortunately for Israel, there was a man named Achan who had stolen some of the gold in Jericho and some of the garments in Jericho for himself though God had forbade all of Israel from taking any of the spoils during that first victory. It was a secret sin of one man that infected the whole camp and made them spiritually weak. And when they went out into battle against Ai, they discovered that the power of God, it was not with them. How had they lost the power of God? Well, they had exited the sphere of God's power. God had not moved, but they had moved. Their disobedience, of course, in one man, but that one man representative of the whole collective group had brought them out of the sphere of God's power and ability. And if you want to live in the place where God's power is most manifest, uh, it's not about, uh, you know, being the kind of person who is superstitious or being the kind of person who acts super spiritual. No, it's about being a person who walks in the light, a clean life. That is a powerful life. And Abraham, he was living that way. He's responding to, to God uh, with obedience coming out of his life. And so Abraham was a hundred years old, it says in verse five, when his son Isaac was born to him. Just an absolute miracle. Now let's see Sarah's response in verse six. It says, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, this is beautiful, of course, because as I've already mentioned in today's study and as we've seen in previous studies, Isaac's name means laughter. And Sarah highlights uh, the laughter by saying, God has made laughter for me and everyone who hears about this, they will also laugh over me. Now, I like this for a few reasons. You know, one major reason to me is that, first of all, it seems that Sarah is allowing her previous 
lack of faith to be redeemed in this moment. You know, she'd had a time in her life where she had laughed at the plans of God. She had laughed at the promises of God. And that laughter, it was not the laughter uh, which said, oh, that's so amazing. I can't believe that something like that would happen to me kind of laughter. It wasn't laughter that was celebrating the favor of God upon her life. No, it was laughter that was filled with doubt. She was doubting God's ability. She looked at her own body. She looked at the body of Abraham and she felt this is impossible. And so she laughed the laughter of doubt. And God, of course, had confronted her in the tent. And she said, no, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. But here, now a year later, Isaac is born and she says, God has made laughter for me. As she raised this little boy, named in a sense, laughter, as she thought about how old she was, 90 years old, and Abraham, 100 years old, and the way that God had blessed them with a child after so many decades of desperation and disappointment, she just said, this little child, he is laughter for me. God has made laughter for me. So I like the redemption there because in a sense, what Sarah is doing is she just moving forward. She knows she can't change her laughter in the past, but she can definitely laugh differently in the future. And I just love that about this moment. So she thinks that she herself will laugh, but she also says that others will laugh for me or over me as well. And this is another thing about experiencing the power of God upon your life. It's merely to be a person who responds with joy when God does fulfill his promises, when God does fulfill his promises, to be a person that responds with joy. It says in Psalm 126, verse 5, that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. And for the believer, there really is that constant tension between sorrow and joy. You know, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. There is so much that we as believers would mourn about and over. Uh, partly when we see our own brokenness within. You know, the, the first two Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, and then blessed are those who mourn. You put all of those together, you're coming face to face with your own limitations. You're coming face to face with your own sin. So there's mourning over that, but there's also mourning over the brokenness that's in the world. But combine that with the joy of knowing that the Lord is returning, returning that his kingdom will come, that it must be established, the joy of the gospel, the joy of our salvation. And I think it's possible as a believer, here Sarah had to kind of wait with anticipation for the fulfillment of God, but I think she could have lived her whole life after receiving the promise in joy at what God was going to do until he did it, and then living the rest of her life with joy over what he had done in her past. You see, as believers by faith, we can always walk in some sense of joy, knowing at least by faith that in the future, God is going to fulfill his promises. And at the very least that we can look back and see the cross of Jesus Christ and have great joy because of that. And so uh, here she has great joy and we also can have great joy as well for what the Lord has given to us. So she just celebrates, you know, I've got all this laughter. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child, verse eight, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is meant to be kind of a celebratory uh, statement or verse. And the idea is that Isaac is about two or maybe three years old, that he's no longer breastfeeding. Uh, that's about how long they would have done it back in that era. And now he's no longer breastfeeding, he's weaned. And so they throw a big party. Abraham has a 
great feast that day in celebration for the fact that Isaac has made it to that age marker in his life. And why would that be a celebratory moment? Well, partly because, you know, in a time and place like that, the question about a baby would be, is this baby going to live? You know, very rustic, difficult conditions. Is this baby going to survive? Is this baby going to thrive? And so to make it through the weaning process, it was like a celebration. Yes, Isaac, he's going to live. He's going to survive. And so they're celebrating, having a feast together. But Sarah, verse 9, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Now, that's an ominous statement or an ominous title for Hagar, isn't it? I mean, especially for the Israelites who had just come out of slavery in Egypt to see her called Hagar, the Egyptian. It's like you kind of know where the text is going. So Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Now I want you to notice a couple of shifts in the way that Sarah speaks about Ishmael and speaks about Hagar. Previously, Hagar was the handmaid. Now she's referred to as the slave woman. Uh, previously, Ishmael was called Ishmael. Now, uh, Sarah calls him the son of the slave woman or the son of this slave woman. And the reason that Sarah is so upset about Ishmael and goes to Abraham with this request that uh, he cast out Hagar and Ishmael is because Sarah saw Ishmael laughing at Isaac during this feast where Isaac was being weaned. Now, I've already mentioned to you not only the meaning of Isaac's name, but in a previous study, we talked about how uh, th all throughout Isaac's life, there will be different episodes where the, the uh, idea of laughter is connected to his life. And this is one of those episodes, Ishmael laughing at Isaac. And it actually is the same word that was used for Isaac's name when it says that Ishmael was laughing. It's the same word that is used to, to uh, name Isaac uh, himself. The, the meaning of the word can go in a bunch of different directions. In some contexts, it means to play with. And so there are actually some English translations that will say that uh, Ishmael was playing with Isaac and that this upset, it, uh, or upset Sarah. Uh, or uh, it's also a word that can mean uh, to joke with. You might remember when the uh, when Lot went to the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and said, hey, destruction's coming, wrath is coming, it says that they thought that he was only joking. Same word uh, translated laughing here. Uh, but it's also a word that in some contexts can have some kind of even uh, like a sexual play attached to it. The reality is we don't know exactly what Ishmael was doing to Isaac. Uh, and later in the text, there are some indications that Ishmael at, at least became a godly man, but something that he was doing upset Sarah. She, she felt that what, whatever Ishmael was doing was worthy of him being cast out because of the way that he felt about Isaac. Now, as you go on, I mean, really what's happening here is that Sarah perceives a threat to the plan of God, a threat to the power of God continuing to be expressed in Abraham's family. And, you know, you have to remember at this point, Ishmael is probably 16 or 17 years old uh, because Abraham was 86 uh, when Ishmael was born. He was 100. Then when Isaac was born, so that puts Ishmael at 14 years of age, and then 
uh, Isaac's now two or three years old, so add two or three years to uh, Ishmael's life. He's either 16 or 17 years old. He's quite a bit older than Isaac, and he's looking down upon his little sibling or his little half-brother. And I think in a sense what's happening here is that Ishmael is uh, really himself doubting that the plan of God is going to be expressed through Isaac. In other words, this is competition. And Sarah can just see it from afar. There is, there is something here with this teenage boy that he is going to compete with my son Isaac for the plan of God that God has said he would unfold through Isaac. And so in a sense, I, I think I would say it like this. If you want to continue to experience the power of God in your life, because what, what we're going to see happen is that Abraham is going to cast out uh, Hagar and cast out Ishmael at God's direction. And I think in a sense, what this could be a picture of is the idea that if we want to see the power of God unfold in our lives, there are moments where we have to reject and get rid of uh, the doubt or the mocking or the unbelief that exists. Of course, the people of Israel, they understood this in some very sobering ways. Remember when they got to the edge of the land of promise and Moses sent in 12 spies to spy out the land. And after 40 days of touring the land, they came back to the camp and reported that it was a beautiful land, but the people in the land were giants and men of war, and the people grew fearful in their hearts. 10 of the spies had a bad report, only two believed, but the people believed and followed the report of the 10 unbelieving spies. And that unbelief, of course, cost the people of Israel, and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief until that unbelieving adult generation died off and a new generation was raised up that could believe what God was doing. You see, so often we want to see the power of God unfold in our own lives or unfold in our churches or unfold in our ministries or unfold in our families. But too often we listen to the unbelieving mocking voice. We listen to that voice inside that says, you're never going to amount to anything. You'll never see the hand or the power of God unfold in your life. You'll never kick this addiction. You'll never be that kind of person. And when we hear that voice, we're so often kept back from the power of God that is ready, able, and willing to strengthen us and give us victory in this Christian life. And so if you want to experience the power of God, there are times you have to deal with the doubt. You have to deal with the threat or the competition. And in this story, Ishmael was that threat. He was that competition. But her request was very simple to Abraham, cast him out. Now in verse 11, it says, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. This should catch our attention because... This episode is now going to sound very similar to the previous episode when Sarah, after Ishmael's birth, grew jealous and Abraham, instead of interceding, praying about it, he just told Sarah, do whatever you want to do. And Sarah's wrath drove Hagar into the wilderness. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and said, go back and submit to uh, Sarah and I will bless you and I will bless your son. But here in this episode, Abraham doesn't behave that way. He doesn't just say, well, whatever, whatever you want to do, Sarah, I'm willing to submit to you. No, here he's dismayed. It's displeasing to him. He's grown, of course, to love Ishmael. He wants Ishmael's best. He wants to take care of Ishmael. He doesn't want to abandon Ishmael just because Isaac is now born and the child of promise. But notice what happens next. It says, but God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. I want you to see here, God agrees with Sarah's plan. And like I said, because of the previous episode uh, in chapter 16, this should come as a great shock to us as readers. In the previous episode, uh, it was all Sarah's idea. It was all evil. And God uh, reversed Sarah's decision by blessing Hagar in the wilderness and sending her back into Abraham's household. But here, God seems to agree. He calls Hagar what Sarah called her, a slave woman. Uh, he refers to Ishmael the way that Sarah referred to Ishmael, calling him the son of a slave woman. And then he said to Abraham, do as Sarah, do as she tells you. And there are times where God will speak to a husband's heart, do what your wife is saying. But this is God allaying Abraham's worries. This is God saying, this is actually a, a moment that I am overseeing. I want you to send this woman and this young man off on their own. Be not displeased to do it, he said. But God, in the midst of saying this, reconfirms now to Abraham that he would do an amazing thing in Ishmael's life. He said in verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. In other words, the Ishmaelite people would become a great people in their own right. Now, over the years, there have been times where uh, people who have embraced Islam in the Middle East have claimed Ishmael as their ancestor, but it's a, really a highly suspect connection. In the pages of scripture, the Ishmaelites and the Israelites generally get along well. And here God is saying that he is going to bless the Ishmaelite people. Now, again, this goes back to that same idea that threats to God's promise or God's power or God's plan, they have to be neutralized. They must be dealt with. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul uses this whole story as an example of the battle between the law and grace or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the flesh and the spirit and the promise and the, the work, working for our salvation. And so here he's dealing with this threat. So Abraham, verse 14, rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, because she was wandering into the wilderness of Beersheba, that helps us understand that Hagar was likely on her way back to Egypt. That's where she'd come from originally. So she's going back to her home nation. Abraham doesn't give her very much for the journey. He gives her a skin of water and puts it on her shoulders, probably not just like a little water bottle, but like a 30 pound a skin of water for that long desert journey. We would assume she had a few other supplies, but he doesn't give her livestock or wealth. He doesn't really give her anything. And at first glance, as readers, we might look at that and think of it as a cold-hearted move from Abraham. But think about it. He was grieved when Sarah approached him about casting Ishmael out. This was not something that he wanted to do because he loved Ishmael. But it was God who told him that he would make of Ishmael a great nation. So I think in a sense what's happening here is that Abraham is trusting God. He's trusting that God said he would do a great thing in Ishmael's life and that he did not need to prop that up 
with wealth, riches, or any other thing, but that God would be Ishmael's defense, that God would take care of him. And in a sense, by sending Hagar out with just a skin of water, it was kind of a statement like, look, I'm not contributing at all to your future blessing, but there is a God in heaven who has said that he would bless my life. And he is now also saying that he will bless your life and you need to go experience this now. He is going to work mightily on your behalf. Remember when Abraham came back from the battle against all of the kings in Genesis chapter 14 and the king of Sodom came out to try to give Abraham a bunch of spoils and Abraham refused them. He said, no, I've already predetermined. I won't take anything from your hand lest you say, I am the one who made Abraham rich. And in a sense, it's like Abraham is saying to Hagar, look, I don't want you or Ishmael to ever say that I was the one who made you who you are. God has given you a promise. He is going to do this uh, in your life. So even though it might sound harsh uh, at first, I think it really is emblematic of the way that God is actually working in some powerful ways directly with Hagar. I mean, she's one of the only people in scripture who received two theophanies, if you think about it, two moments, both in a wilderness experience with her son Ishmael, where the angel of the Lord appeared to her. She had two moments where that occurred. So obviously God loves this woman, cares for this woman, and is watching over uh, her life. And I think that Abraham in some way is trusting God for her future. Doesn't that remind us at times of the people that he's put, that the Lord has placed in our lives and how there's just a limit to how much we can do for the people that he's called us to minister to. Sometimes we just need to trust God. You know, Lord, you're the one that needs to bless this person. You're the one that will help them stand on their own two feet. Lord, you're the one, whether it's your own children or whether it's a fellow believer that you're trying to disciple or whether it's a pastor that you've sent out from your local church. You know, there are moments we help and then there are moments that we say, you know what? We had to go through these lessons. We learned these things and God was faithful and he will also be faithful to you. All right, let's go on in verse 15. It says, when the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Now, this is a fascinating part of this story because, uh, well, for one, Ishmael, as I said already, is 16 or 17 years old at this point. And so it seems perhaps even a little overly dramatic that she places this nearly grown young man under the bush, draws away from him a bow shot in length and begins grieving as if he's most certainly a dead man. She's just despairing. Now, remember, God had already appeared to her. Uh, she had learned that God is the God who hears and that God is the God who sees. Uh, that's the name of Ishmael, God hears. So she knows that. So in a sense, you might have wanted to encourage her, hey, Hagar, you've been in this kind of situation before. Cry out to God. Uh, he was faithful to you in the past. He'll be faithful to you again. But she just begins despairing. She thinks all is lost. She thinks Ishmael is about to die. They're out of water. They're out in the wilderness. It appears that she's lost. But notice that it says in verse 17 that God heard the voice of the boy. And 
the angel said to Hagar, God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, that God heard the voice of the boy. It might just mean that he was there groaning for his life. But it's very possible that Ishmael was crying out to the God of his father Abraham at this point. This very well might have been the moment of Ishmael's conversion. This very well might have been the moment that drove him to submit himself to God. I mean, in fact, in the very previous episode, we see him behaving very much like an unbeliever in persecuting the child of promise. But here it's very possible that he's now submitted himself through this particular trial that he's going through, that he's submitting himself to, to the God of heaven, crying out to him. And if that is the case, then it was the wilderness that produced that uh, in uh, his life. I think in a sense, this is helpful to us anytime we go through a catastrophe or trial that is widespread, uh, where thousands, millions, billions of people, many states or cities or nations all go through it together. Uh, or even just a natural disaster or economic downturn, you know, different things that affect multitudes of people. It might help us when we're in times like that to just consider what God might be doing as he brings people into a wilderness experience. Perhaps their hearts are being opened up to a greater degree to him. Now, we would never say, of course, that this is happening to everyone who goes through a trial, uh, because if that was the case, then everyone would be a believer. But at least at this moment, Ishmael, as he interpreted that trial in his own life, he became humble and it seems that he cried out to God. And the Lord says to Hagar what he said to Abraham, I'm going to make your child into a great nation. You see, when it comes to the people of God who live by the power of God, one thing that the people of God need to know is that God always has a desire to bring more people into his plan. It doesn't dilute his love. It doesn't dilute his power. And what the people of Israel would be seeing right here is that though God was working in Abraham and Isaac, uh, and though God was working with Abraham and Sarah, God was also working in Hagar and Ishmael. He was trying to produce his blessing, not just in the nation of Israel, but in the surrounding nations as well. And uh, this would be an important lesson for the people of Israel to learn. And that lesson is going to be furthered even in the rest of this passage. But this is beautiful to me because what you see here with Hagar and Ishmael is uh, a fatherless, husbandless, uh, uh, a fatherless child and a husbandless woman, but there's God. He's operating as the husband. He's operating as the father. He is stepping in, standing in on their behalf. And so he tells her to get up and lift up the boy. And then in verse 19, it says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, it's very possible that this was God miraculously producing water for Hagar. It would not be the last time that God has miraculously produced water for the people that he loves. But I also wouldn't be surprised if what's happening here is that her fear, her sorrow, her worry, her concern so blinded her to the fact that she was right next to a well of water. This is just a very human experience, I think. Fear blinding us, keeping us from seeing the provision of God upon our lives. And what's cool about this moment, additionally, is that in a second, we're going to see God bless Abraham by giving him a well of water that him and Abimelech are going to negotiate over. And before even getting to that, we see that God also blessed Hagar like he blessed Abraham with 
a well to, uh, to drink from. So they get up and they fill the skin with water and she gives the boy a drink. And God, verse 20, was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, those sentences that I just read right there, they actually might have um, been directly sourced eventually from Ishmael himself, not Ishmael to Moses, but Ishmael uh, recounting this and then that tradition being passed down until Moses write it. And the reason I say that is because notice there in verse 20, it says that he became an expert with the bow. He became a great archer or a hunter with the bow. Remember back in, six, in verse 16, Hagar, his mother, she saw him, thought that he was dying. How far away was he from her? Well, it says about the distance of a bow shot, which I think is the only time in the Bible that that phrase is used to describe distance. So I think maybe Ishmael was the one later on who began retelling this story. We were out there. How far was your mom away from you? She was about a bow shot. How did he know that? Well, because here he is. He had become an expert with the bow. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of Abimelech's army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where I have sojourned. Now, this is obviously a brand new scene. We've seen the birth of Isaac. We've seen the banishment and the protection and blessing of God upon uh, Hagar and Ishmael. And this is our last episode of our study today. Uh, it's Abimelech, who we saw in Genesis chapter 20, approaching Abraham. Remember what happened in chapter 20? Abraham had gone into Abimelech's territory and told Sarah uh, to say what she normally said when they went to various places. Tell everybody here that I'm your brother. The thought being that he was safer somehow uh, by being her brother than by being her husband. Uh, perhaps the idea, like I've been mentioning, that uh, they would have killed her husband to take her hand in marriage. But if he's a brother, then they might negotiate with him and he could drive the price up so high that uh, they refused to try to marry Sarah. And because of that honor kind of culture that they were in, they would have left Sarah and Abraham alone. But Abimelech, he's a wealthy man. He's the king. He's the power of that area. He takes Sarah into his harem. And again, the whole plan of God is in jeopardy because even one sexual encounter with Abimelech would mean that Isaac's birth is less than legitimate. There'd always be a question. Is this really the child of Abraham? So God strikes the whole house of Abimelech uh, with the closure of the wombs, which might have been some kind of sexual dysfunction or disease or something like that within the home. Something keeps Abimelech from touching Sarah in a sexual way. And then God gives to Abimelech a revelation in, a, in the night where God speaks to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man, you've taken another man's wife. And so Abimelech goes through the process of making things right, getting Sarah back to Abraham. So they have history together is what I'm trying to say. And Abimelech comes to Abraham with this kind of twofold announcement slash request. Uh, he, he basically wants to live at peace with Abraham. Um, but he starts out by saying first, you know, Abraham, I know that God is with you in all that you do. I know that God is with you in all that you do. What a beautiful statement. Wouldn't we love for people to say this about our own lives? I know that God is with you in all that you do. But then secondarily, he also says to Abraham, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely. Uh, with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. Now that's the shameful part about what Abimelech had to say. You know, he knew that Abraham had lied to him 
previously. So he's a little worried about that. You know, please don't lie uh, to me again. Now, uh, what, what would this, before we move on and close out the chapter, what would this say to uh, the people of Israel? What would this say to us as we observe this in Abraham's life? Well, you know, we've been talking today about the people of God living by the power of God. You've got the power of God there with baby Isaac. And, you know, there's Abraham like, living in obedience, responding in obedience. There's Sarah uh, laughing with joy. Uh, there's Abraham and Sarah doing their part to deal with any threat that is uh, coming up against the plan of God. Uh, there's God, you know, reaching out to people who are far from his power and plan and bringing them into his program here on earth. But here is another beautiful element about living in the power of God, just, just experiencing God's hand upon your life. And it's this, just trying to, if you can, live at peace with those who are on the outside, living at peace with those who are on the outside. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 11 that we should aspire to live quietly and we should mind our own affairs. Uh, this is kind of what's happening here. Abimelech comes to Abraham and just says, look, I would like to live at peace with you. If you're willing to live at peace with me, let's make a treaty together. This would have been an important lesson for the people of Israel to learn because when they went into the promised land, they went in as instruments of God's wrath and judgment upon a people who were ripe because of their sin. Hundreds of years had passed by. They had not repented. Uh, God's judgment was ready for that people group that lived inside of the land of Canaan. But there would be people outside of the land of Canaan who were not yet converts, but who wanted to live at peace with Israel. And it was okay not for them to share religion or anything like that, but okay for them to live at peace with one another. In fact, this was seemingly part of God's evangelistic plan for the nation of Israel. His house was to be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the people of Israel were supposed to be part of that plan to, in a sense, evangelize the world, tell the world about the God of Israel. Abraham. And so when you can live at peace with outsiders and Abraham, verse 24, he responded, he said, I will swear. It's very curt. It's very brief. And in a second, we learn why it says in verse 25. And when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I did not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. And I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Now, this is a reverse from what happened in chapter 20. In chapter 20, Abimelech gave a bunch of stuff to Abraham and Sarah to prove uh, his innocence and to testify of the purity of Sarah. Now here, Abraham is giving to Abimelech. And it all kind of centers around Abraham's desire to be able to have rights to this well that he's uh, dug up or this well that he has found that Abimelech's servants apparently in the past have seized. And they're trying to make that right. Now, the idea of Abraham, you know, needing to negotiate for a well of water in land that he does not own, but that he's borrowing from a foreign power. All of that speaks to the fact that this guy is just a sojourner. He's just a pilgrim. He's just wandering. He's not yet entered into the land of promise. It's not yet his. And this is the other part of the promise from God. I mean, yeah, God said that he would have a child and that he'd have physical descendants, uh, that he'd be the ancestor of descendants like the sand on the seashore, but also the land of promise 
would belong to his people at one point. And right here, he has to negotiate for just water just so that he can stay in the land, borrow some of the land. They made the deal though, and so it says in verse 31, therefore that place was called Beersheba, uh, which uh, scholars say either means seven or oaths uh, or both because you had seven ewe lambs and then you had the oath that they kept making. That word oath is repeated throughout this little passage. Probably over time, it just came to mean both, you know, seven and oaths. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now this last move that we see here in this passage is of Abraham <clears throat> worshiping God in a fascinating way. He worships God by planting a tree. Now, what would that have meant for Abraham? I, I don't think that it was his way of celebrating the environment or anything like that, though that's a fine thing to do. But there you have this well at Beersheba. He gets permission to use that well, to live by that well. Water is life. So that's where they're going to live. He takes a tamarisk tree, which is a tree that Bedouins would plant in various places to provide shade, uh, to provide foliage for their flocks to be able to eat from. So he plants a tamarisk tree there by that well. What would that tamarisk tree communicate? Well, basically it was an act of faith in God, trusting the Lord. How so? Well, it, it, in a sense, it was saying, I believe that God is going to provide me all the water that I need while I'm here. You know, he is going to, the water will continue to flow and this tamarisk tree is going to live. It also spoke about time, didn't it? I mean, a tree doesn't just grow, take root overnight. It's a process. And so to plant a tree, it spoke of Abraham's intention that this eventually, this is going to be our place. He believed it by faith. But it also, I think, speaks of the peace that he expected to find there, that he would not have to war against Abimelech or, and Phicol, his commander, that he wouldn't have to war against the powers that be in that land, but that there'd be peace in that land. It seems to have been a statement of faith from Abraham to plant that tree in that place. And it's interesting because it says that it was there that he began to call on the name of the Lord or called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, the everlasting God. It's probably not so much a way for Abraham to call upon the fact that God is eternal, though Abraham would have believed that and agreed with that, but a way for Abraham to call upon God who is enduring, God who never stops, God who keeps going. And to him, it's like as these roots went down into the ground, he is saying, I am putting my roots into the everlasting God who will be my enduring forever constant source of life, source of peace, and source of growth and strength. And so if you really want to experience the power of God, you've got to root yourself into God himself, his power, his might, his majesty. And so it says there in verse 34 that Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. It really wasn't quite yet the land of the Philistines, though some scholars think that there were ancient peoples who were there already at that time who would have been um, ancestors to the eventual Philistines who came from the West and populated uh, those shores. Uh, but it's probably a statement that's written later, you know, saying the area that he was in is the place that eventually became the land of the Philistines. God bless you, church. 
Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.